being the nonprofit, we have to kind of prioritize lifts and lift reliability are my number one. The, the first day I started, uh, one of our chairs, the comm line went down and it was down for 30 minutes on opening day in the first 15 minutes. I was horrified. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And from that moment forward, you know, I talked to our maintenance team. I'm like, what resources do you need? to solve these silly problems that should not be a problem. And we've spent the last three years replacing comm lines, 100% shift replacements. We should not be shut down for silly things like that. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Back to our ski area lineup today and one of the country's great ski regions, the Pacific Northwest. Before we get to that, if you're new here, I need you to please pop over to stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is awesome, but it is just a small part of the storm. And really, it is just a small part of the podcast. That is because each episode has an accompanying article on stormskiing.com that includes a full breakdown of the ski area and tons of additional context around our conversation. I am also churning out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift serve skiing all year long for email newsletter subscribers. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it at stormskiing.com instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Before we get to Mount Spokane, a word from my friends at Open Snow. I live within a five-hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. That means I have choices, and I need to know where it's going off when I plan my ski days. Is Western New York getting hammered, or is it the spine in northern Vermont? Or can I sleep in a bit and make do with the Catskills, Poconos, or Berkshires? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use Open Snow outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models updated hourly resort by resort snow forecasts and one of my favorite features frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice for me i rock the mid-atlantic new england and all u.s emails but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows focused on regions as varied as the midwest British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. Open Snow is now a storm partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. Episode 113, Jim Van Lobensals, General Manager of Mount Spokane, Washington. Hello again, Washington State. No one shows up for the stormskiing podcast like Pacific Northwest skiers. And we are popping over to the east side of the region today for a deep look at one of your community hills. This is a really interesting one, and it is a true throwback. Like a lot of ski areas in the region, Mount Spokane still has no snowmaking. Its oldest chairlift dates to 1956, and 
there's not really much there other than a few base buildings and a parking lot. And its top lift ticket price is still just $75. But don't mistake this retro vibe for a place that's standing still. Mount Spokane is rapidly modernizing under its current leadership. And while that doesn't mean the place is going to lose its character or charm, you better go ride those antique riblets while you still can, because this is a mountain on the move, and we are going to hear all about it today. Let's do it. My guest today has been general manager of Mount Spokane, Washington since July 2020. Mount Spokane features 1,704 acres of terrain served by seven lifts on a 2,071-foot vertical drop. The ski area averages 300 inches of snow per season. In continuous operation since 1938, Mount Spokane is one of the oldest ski areas in the Pacific Northwest. Prior to taking the top job at Mount Spokane, he spent more than two decades in the wine industry. He is also a board member of the Washington State Parks Foundation. Jim Van Lobensels is my guest. Jim, welcome to the storm. I hope you have had a great 2023 so far. How are you doing on this Monday morning? Well, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I'm ready to rumble. We uh, made it through the stretch and uh, are, we have an awesome team and great snow conditions. Can't ask for a better start to the season. So, you know, Jim, I'm sitting out here on the East Coast and we have not had a great start to winter, but I've been watching the storms roll in nonstop over the West. How has the 2022 to 23 ski season started out for Mount Spokane? Well, like I said, we've we've got great snow. We're really fortunate to be fully staffed with over 300 plus employees. We had an on-time start, which the last couple of years, uh, we've been a week or two later than we wanted to. And so we started right after Thanksgiving. There's always talk of starting earlier. And I think sometimes that puts a lot of stresses on the team. So we kind of just stuck to the plan open on uh, December 3rd, which was our targeted opening date. And we've been running full speed ahead ever since. So you mentioned you're fully staffed. Has that not been the case the last couple of seasons? I know a lot of your colleagues throughout the industry have struggled to fully staff up the mountains. Is this the first year in a while you've been able to do that, or has that not been as much of an issue for you? For us, we're, we're close to the city of Spokane, a great metropolitan base, you know, 45 minutes. With COVID, you know, it was a little challenging. And what usually happened was we had a stretch where there was a week of 30 to 40 employees being out sick with COVID. And that's what kind of stretched us. But we have been um, right in the realm of what we want, a little lean last year. But overall, we've been able to kind of keep and maintain the, the staff we're looking for. And what does that mean just from a, from an operations point of view and from a skier point of view? I mean, for example, you, you mentioned the stress of your staff sometimes when you try to do too much. Is having more employees there just better for them mentally? And then and then for skiers, what does that mean when you're able to fully staff up all positions? Well, I think from the guest experience, obviously, you know, garbage cans don't pile up. You've got your setup for your lift lines are on time and and starting on time. But from a staffing standpoint, I use the word redundancy. I really appreciate it when multiple people know multiple jobs and you can give your team the break they need. You know, the first year I started, I was working almost seven days a week. We were in the COVID mode trying to adjust 
weekly here in Washington state with being one of the first states with COVID and one of the more stringent COVID regulation and standard. And so trying to adapt and make it fun for your team at the same time was pretty much a struggle. But as we came out of it, I always want to give our team the best chance to succeed. And you can't work seven days a week, even though our industry kind of demands that. So redundancy, again, is my ability to give people at least one to two days off a week where once we get out of that peak so that they can be refreshed and come to work and, and want to be here. And that's especially important at, a, at an area like yours, Jim, where you do have night skiing. So just talk about the extra complications that that brings to you. And it, just to set this up for the listeners, what are Spokane's general operating hours? Yeah, we are fortunate. We have one of the larger night skiing areas in Washington state. We operate from nine in the morning till nine in the evening, uh, which means you have to have two shifts and the weather at night is a little more extreme than the weather during the day. And just the conditions for patrolling. We have a volunteer patrol. You have to make sure they're happy too. And when you get those extreme cold temperatures, which we started the season with, you have to determine what's in the best interest of your team and your guests and so forth. You know, we're constantly 24-7 from the time we start night skiing because the cats go out on the mountain immediately after we close and our servicing areas that are closed to the night skiing. So yeah, it's a challenge to keep morale up. And I don't always see all of our team and I make an effort to come in once or twice a week on the night shifts and uh, communicate with that team as well as get in and see our um, our groomers too. Are you night skiing seven nights a week there? So we do night skiing Wednesday to Saturday and then and then what is that uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday we're just uh, nine to four. Now the thing that happened when I started up because there was concern about the concentration of, of skiers we we were only five days a week and that was one of the things I brought to the table was let's go seven days a week so we can spread the crowd out a little more. And so that changed the dynamics because we usually had Monday, Tuesday off and going seven days a week and then nine to nine really kind of impacted our ability to fix things if they break on facilities. Like we have to be a little more creative with facility maintenance, cap maintenance that, you know, we're just not, we don't have any downtime. But the seven days a week has paid off. We've seen good returns on with the guests wanting to be here on Monday, Tuesday. And so we've continued that model and it added about 10%, about 14 more days to our winter schedule by adding the Monday, Tuesdays. So seven days a week from about mid-December till the end of February. Do you think that'll be a permanent change then? Definitely. And we've seen some great responses from our customer base. I think it's working and we're getting the attendance that we had hoped for. And with good snowpack and good years, it's working out great. All right, Jim, I want to get a lot more into the mountain in a little bit here. But first, I, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you have a really interesting background. You know, you see folks from with all, all sorts of different stories and, and a lot of people show up to bump chairs when they're 18 and they never leave. But as I mentioned, you spent two decades working in the wine industry for an operation called Arbor Crest Wine Cellars. So just lay this out for us, Jim. What was your career track? What did you do at Arbor Wine Cellars? And, and ultimately, what brought you into the ski industry in 2020? Sure. Yeah, I've had a fun journey. My dad just taught me to be really independent and want to work for myself. And early on, I was a I sheared sheep in high school when I was in 4-H and, you know, just really loved that autonomy and independence. Went to UC Davis. And during that period of time, my mom had been a patroller growing up, introduced me to skiing at an early age, seven, and really never looked back. Always went skiing with her on the weekends. 
ended up getting on the patrol finally when I went through college and I did uh, 10 years at Bear Valley between Yosemite and Tahoe family ski area and just really fell in love with the sport. You know, sometimes it's just right place at the right time. Davis was about a three and a half, four hour drive for skiing. So you had to be fairly committed. And my wife, uh, we had gotten married just after college uh, and I did, uh, I think, six years of this commute for our commute and ski patrolling. And then her uncle called us uh, one day and said, uh, hey, uh, I'd like you to come up and take over our winery, our family winery. And of course, I, I didn't mention my uncle was a vineyard manager in Napa. So I spent in the late 60s, early 70s, some time up with him in the vineyards and had a lot of hands-on vineyard experience. And my wife had gone to UC Davis in the viticulture enology program to learn how to make wine. So kind of a perfect match. And when her uncle called and asked if we would want to take over, my first response was, yeah, why wouldn't you want to work for yourself? But as you know, that comes with, I would call a little pain and suffering because you're responsible for everything at that point, all the finances, making sure the job gets done the way you are, making sure the customers are satisfied. So we moved to Spokane, Washington, took over the family winery. And for 20 years, we worked together and really enjoyed that moment. We had raised three kids during that time frame, and about year 10 in, I decided to rejoin the patrol here at Mount Spokane, and that's where all three of my kids learned how to ski, and so got really familiar with Mount Spokane at that point, and then there was a moment and I think everybody goes through the raising kids and all of a sudden you realize you're getting pulled in a million directions and I couldn't patrol anymore and take a full day off of work on the a midweek day um, because we were transporting kids back and forth. So at that point, we just said, let's go enjoy the sport. We could afford tickets at that time. And we moved our family at skiing weekends up to Schweitzer Mountain. And um, we spent six years skiing as a family and our kids learned how to ski everything at Schweitzer. And it was at that point, when the kids started getting into high school, we didn't go every weekend and we're like, huh, this is interesting. We have a condo and uh, we're not going every weekend. And in the summer, we would go to the in-laws place in northern Idaho, Priest Lake. So we just weren't using it. So we kind of left the Schweitzer scene and the winery scene. We, I was approaching my 20 year mark going, OK, we've done a lot. We've turned the whole business model around to being a destination winery versus a wholesale winery, uh, meaning grocery stores. And when COVID hit, Christina and I looked at each other and go, well, we got all our eggs in one basket here working in the same business. Who knows what COVID's going to bring? Do we want to do this for another 20 years? And as it turned out, we, we said, well, let's let's think outside the box. And my outside box thinking looked at Mount Spokane and said, geez, they only do the ski portion. Wouldn't be great if they could get integrated into like the 365 day model where they're doing the mountain biking and summer camps and, and really expand their footprint. And so I approached the manager right after my wife and I had that conversation and said, hey, would you be interested in you know me doing some volunteer time and helping you grow some additional programs? And he talked to the board and they're like, sounds good, figure it out. And then right after that, maybe a month and a half after that conversation, so I think I talked to him in November, reconnected with the previous general manager in mid-January after the stretch. And he's like, hey, look, I'm thinking about retiring. Would you want me to throw your name in the hat? And at that point, I was like, huh, I really hadn't thought about that. But yeah, <laughs> I love the ski industry. Let's go for it. 
So that's kind of how I got the name in the bucket. And that took about a six month interview process as they were trying to fly people in individually and interview. I think some of the winning components from my standpoint is I knew the state park system. I'd been on the state parks foundation. I knew the staff with state parks and I knew the Mount Spokane team from being on the patrol. Plus I was plugged into the community uh, with our chamber and our Visit Spokane, which is the tourism convention center. Really just had a lot of pluses in my bucket that outsiders didn't. And they kind of ran with the non-traditional ski industry guy and it's gone very well for me. <laughs> so so you get the gig. And it's a, it's a whole new thing for you, right? You've been running a different kind of business for a long time. It's challenging enough to run a ski area and challenging enough to start a new operation, but you did it at probably the most singular moment in most of our lifetimes, which was the COVID summer of 2020. So what was that experience like? You show up and not only do you have to run the ski area and lean on all the experts in the various departments, but you have to rethink the whole process. So how did that go? And ultimately, did that end up being an advantage, being the guy who was able to look at it from a different point of view? It was definitely an advantage. I feel really fortunate coming in because COVID started the mentality of thinking differently, knowing that nothing was going to come back the same way it had been. And so people already accepted change. And I think, as you know, the ski industry, even from my uh, limited three years, was entrenched in certain cultures and certain things. And I would use the ticketing as one of those cultural practices where you just show up at the mountain and you get your ticket. COVID allowed us to create the online purchasing system and they were refined and they're still being refined. It opened a door to manage our crowd a little more. We could say we were sold out if we wanted to manage the crowd and the parking. And that that's a residual thing that continues to help us manage skier visit on a daily basis. The COVID component in Washington State, it was pretty stringent and it changed weekly. We just learned to adapt. And, and I had dealt with it at the winery about six months earlier earlier because our busy season is the summer where we do concerts, weddings, and events. And the largest size event you could have was 25. At one point, we were used to having 1,500 people there on a weekend for a concert. So we really had to kind of hunker in, figure things out, do it differently. And I'd already been through one round of it, working with the county, which was managing the, the health component and the COVID side of it. And I had a good relation, working relationship with the director of the local health department. So when we started the ski conversation, it was really all about the indoor component and, and safety indoors, which we were at 25% capacity. So we had to think, how do we force people outside? We bought a container bar so that we could serve beer outside and people didn't have to come in. Uh, we expanded a couple of footprints with a yurt and our Vista house, which is a permanent food location. We encouraged the parking lot tailgating, which a lot of the other ski areas did too. We made a lot more grab and go items in the kitchen so that people could come in and, and go out. And then, you know, just being creative with the line spacing and how do we, how do we mitigate that? Fortunately, our state was mandated as a state Idaho had, which is, you know, 10 miles, 15 miles away from us, had a much different angle because it wasn't mandated and some of the counties mandated it, which put some external pressure on the ski area. So it felt like, again, right spot at the right time with some of the right things and just being flexible. Teaching the team to enforce and be proactive was a little challenging, but 
overall, coming in when I came in gave a, gave me an open door and a lot of flexibility to just make change without resistance. So, so on the surface, Jim, these seem like two very different industries, running a vineyard and running a ski area. I can see a couple of similarities that are kind of obvious, and and I'm sure that you you can comment on this a little more. But the, the most obvious to me is just this dependence on weather and having to deal with what comes your way. And both industries seem very, very much like Mother Nature can ruin your day without too much effort. And, and you just ha- kind of have to deal with that. So so just talk a little bit about how you were able to apply some of what you learned at the vineyard to the operation of Mount Spokane. You know, you have to be open-minded and business is not static, right? It's in constant change and resistance to that sometimes is futile, right? So having an open mind and working with Mother Nature in the vineyard side of it, we learned pretty quickly that every vintage, every year we harvest grapes, which is on a one-year cycle versus like some crops, you might get multiple crops, uh, like wheat, you can plant two or three crops of wheat. In the vineyard, you only have one chance. So depending on the time of year, if you have a hard winter in Washington State, we have freezing temperatures that can give you winter damage and you may only get 20% of your crop. Then you come into spring and you can have a freeze that could ruin your buds uh, and you may not get a crop. And then in the summer, we have extreme heat and sometimes that will lower your yields. Uh, And then in the fall, you can get rain and you can get uh, rot on on the grapes. So we're at the whim of Mother Nature in the agriculture industry. In the ski industry, we're just snow farmers. It's just a little different. We're watching the weather. We we're hoping for the extreme precipitation and snowfall and temperatures to get our base out. Um, I think what I learned from the wine industry is you got to be patient and you have to deal with each. I kind of use Lombard Street in San Francisco as my uh, my guiding principle. Life isn't driving straight down the highway. It's like driving down Lombard Street. Accelerate, brake, turn, repeat. And you have to be nimble and able to adjust for the conditions you're giving. In 20 years, we never had one back-to-back year the same. So coming in here and we're in the middle of projects in the summer and, and you realize you go from 300 to 18 employees and you still have just as much work, even bigger projects in the summer to accomplish. It's You need good weather up until you're ready to open. And I've been three years in a row where we've been doing projects right until the the day before we open. That's a little hard on your team. I'm trying to get to October 31st and be done with projects so then we can focus on opening and operational stuff. But I've been fairly ambitious. The team's been behind me and our leadership team in terms of really pivoting and making some substantial changes to facilities, lifts, all the things that I wouldn't call it deferred maintenance, but we have some really old facilities here. And so we're trying to address those head on so we don't have issues during the season. So, so what do you think... Just going back to what you said about how you transform the vineyard into more of a resort or a destination Mm. rather than just a a producer. You know, I'm not sure what the potential is for Spokane being that it's in a state park. But but how how do you see this? What what could Mount because Mount Spokane is one of these places that I think of as a ski area. Right. Not like if you go up to Schweitzer, which is a ski resort because they have all this stuff on site. And it's obviously a very different situation up there. But but what, what do you what do you see long term? What do you hope to to transform or start the transformation of Spokane into? Sure. And I didn't talk about the winery component, but we were three months out of the year when we started, Christina and I, and we were able to get to a year-round model that's self-sustainable without the wholesale component. 
And that's just being strategic and looking at opportunities. One of our biggest successes there was concert on Sundays. People go to the lakes in our region for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They come back, they drop their kids at the house, and then they'd come out and enjoy a last hurrah before going back to work for the week. So I look at Mount Spokane being 45 minutes from population base of 400,000 and trying to find the opportunities that will draw people out here. Arborcrest was only about 20 minutes from downtown. So 45 minutes, you have to create these new intersections where people are drawn out. Uh, one of the things in the summer months, we have what's called the Vista House. If you look us up at mountspokane.com, you'll see this iconic structure that was built in the 1920s. Stone building, very basic, but we started putting food uh, up there on Saturdays for the mountain bikers, hikers, and the people. You can drive all the way to the top of the mountain during the summer as well for the vantage point with a 360-degree view of the region. And so that was one of those things that I looked at as, why don't we have concessions going during the summer? Because because there's equally as many users in the park as there are in the winter, just not as concentrated. Mountain biking is another component where we've seen resorts go after that particular user group. We have Evergreen Mountain Bike Club that's a statewide club that has been building trails within the state park, and there aren't any trails in the concession area. So one of my thoughts was, why don't we have one or two trails built out that lead back to one of the lodges where we can do music on the patio, have the beer container open, you know, keep staff year round. That's one of the things we're really focusing on is if you want to retain good leadership and good, good employee base, three months, four months out of the year is not enough to retain them. So I felt strongly that we needed to look at ways to staff up and keep those staff here so we have a little more consistency. Part of that also was summer camps and the ability to do adventure camps, mountain biking camp. Again, trying to use the facilities that we already have year round. And so those have been a couple of the things we've added. We are a nonprofit, which I think we'll probably talk a little bit about later, but fundraising is another component that I think will be huge. Doing music up here with either the symphony or having a concert one or two a year, not trying to own every weekend, but really focusing in on one or two events that are big draws for the community that as a community ski area people can get behind, I think will be kind of another one of those attractants that adds to our bottom line and adds to the story that we're trying to tell. Yeah, let's let's get into that structure, actually, Jim. So, so Mas Spokane is a is a five hundred one c three organization. Just break this down for us. What what does that mean? And then, who actually owns Mount Spokane and who runs it? So, we're in a unique position. Before Mount Spokane two thousand, which is our legal entity name, took over in nineteen ninety seven. It was private ownership, and the owners had a concession agreement with Washington State Park. At that point, there was some discord because the owners at that time were not reinvesting in the mountain and the facilities were run down, the lifts were not being maintained, and there was just kind of a a point of contention with the community and the owners and parks, and they couldn't come to an agreement. So Mount Spokane 2000 was formed by a group of leaders in the community that wanted the mountain to be successful and wanted it to have kind of a community-based approach. In essence, it was funded by two or three individuals on the board at the time that kind of had a guaranteed seat, purchased it from the family uh, that owned it, 
and then had the concession agreement with Washington State Parks rewritten with the nonprofit. So technically, uh, our 501c3 owns the assets that were bought at the time, which I think is close to 70% of the assets were owned by the, the family. Lodge One, which is still part of our facilities right now, is actually owned by the state park. So it's a little bit of a combination. But they've relinquished it to us for all of the maintenance and everything as part of our concession agreement. So yeah, a little bit of a hybrid, but the 501c3 just gives us some autonomy and also the ability to go out and seek um, legislative funding because we are in a state park and we are a nonprofit and all of our resources go back into maintaining or building out the facilities or all of our uh, equipment. So it gives us a little bit of an angle that some of the other ski areas don't have. So there are lots of ski areas that operate as nonprofits around the United States, and they have all sorts of different ownership structures and governance structures. So you have Mount Ashland, you have Bogus Basin, Bridger Bowl out in your neighborhood or a few of them. We saw over the summer at Gunstock, which is out here on the East Coast in New Hampshire, a, a little bit of a scuffle between management and the board that oversees them. So talk about how that's set up for Mount Spokane what that board looks like and how you work with them. What are they in charge of and what are you in charge of as far as making sure the wheels keep spinning on this thing? Right. So I would say the way we're structured is staff, general manager, and then board. With the board being really 50,000 foot elevation, how do we grow? Are we financially healthy and sustainable? Are our policies correct? How do we manage any legal issues with their guidance if something happens. They're also kind of the strength when we're doing our legislative ask as community leaders to be able to be that support to go to the legislature and and ask for their uh, continued support and or help in growing our funding. My role is really to take our strategic plan, which we've worked on over the last three years, and put that in with kind of our development plan and timing and funding, and then execute that per the board's direction and lead our team during the operation part of the season, but also making sure we have sustainable funding and grow funding and or revenue streams to build our full-time staff and maintain our facilities and lists. So it's fairly straightforward. I've got the majority of the ability to steer the conversation. In the past, the board has been more hands-on and in the trenches, and that isn't always necessarily healthy. I think they call them working boards. Um, I've seen examples of both. My goal is always to go to the board with recommendations and suggestions fully vetted so that when we get to the board level, all they're doing is kind of reviewing the recommendations, making any tweaks to it that would make it even better, And then moving forward, like the homework's already done by the time I get to them. So I I would say that is a little bit of a differentiation from some boards. But I have a lot of autonomy and my leadership team, which would be my assistant general manager, who's also our marketing, Jody Kaler, and our accountant, bookkeeper, HR, and then our operations manager. Like there's four of us that really vet stuff before it goes up to the board. And then we also just work with our staff. Are there anything else you need that we're not providing constantly trying to listen and interact with the team to make sure we're not missing anything in that growth moment? But that's a little bit of our structure and how we're set up, but a fair amount of autonomy and they have a fair amount of trust. And I had to earn that trust, obviously, coming in with no ski industry experience. And I came in and short sheeted myself and said, hey, I'll work for basically nothing. I want to show you what I can do during COVID. And in two years, we've almost doubled our revenue. (laughs) 
Amazing. So I think, you know, you don't necessarily need industry experience when you have great people on your team already. And it's all about leading and communicating and moving forward. So going back to the potential here and and what could be done with this model, the one I look at as the exemplar for the potential is what Brad Wilson has helped do down at Bogus Basin, which is to really crank up the revenues. Uh, They've put in a snowmaking system. They now have four high-speed lifts. And he said something similar to what you did, which is they reinvest every dime that they earn at the ski area back into the ski area. As you survey your peers and, and realize you came in as an industry outsider, but you're in it now. Is there any nonprofit ski areas that you've looked at that you admire that you say, okay, this is something that we could try to apply here because bogus basin going back 10, 15 years, wasn't necessarily as healthy as it is now. So these things, you can completely change the trajectory depending on who's in charge and what their goals are and and what their priorities are. So are there any scary models that you think uh, or or little pieces you want to pull in as you you work to evolve Mouspercan? You know, I think uh, Brad's done an awesome job down at Bogus Basin, and, and I would say that's the the template that that I am looking towards. Um, we talked a little bit about the foundation component, and they've done an awesome job of expanding that busing program, trying to get, uh, there used to be an incredible busing program from downtown Spokane. The logistics of that, the cost of it, how do we offset some of that so that it's affordable and accessible? Really looking at engaging the community differently. You know, for as big a city as are, we are, the percentage of people that ski is is a lot smaller than I would have anticipated uh, after moving here and living here for 20 years. Um, there's still a lot of people that haven't been introduced to the sport. COVID absolutely opened that door and the floodgates and people as families came up and we have residual as a result of that. Our season pass sales have continued to, to grow even in this third year, second year after COVID. But I think that community engagement component, replacing lifts, we have a 67-year-old chairlift working with nice. state parks to get included in their capital budget so that it is their asset at the end of everything, uh, at the end of our tenure at the mountain here, looking to them for the lift replacements and then expanding our facilities so that they're more current. We have some facilities, 1972 for Lodge 2. It just the way things are laid out today versus how they were laid out before and how people want the flow to work and the comfort levels and so forth, it's very different. And so we're we're working diligently on our development plan of how do we get the funding? How do we get the revenue pieces in place, meaning like guest service building with new rental space, new ticketing spaces that will make it efficient and a better experience for the customer? And that's kind of our priority. The other one for us is we have a one stall vehicle maintenance building and we have 30 pieces of equipment. It hampers our ability to turn things around. So next year we'll be putting in a 120 by 60 foot vehicle maintenance building just so we can service what we have. So you have to evaluate what are your needs and what's the highest priority and then how do we fund it? Yeah, let's get into that lift fleet a little bit because as I mentioned in the intro, this is this is a big ski area. I mean, 1,700 acres, 2,000 foot vertical drop. Those are really good numbers by any measure. And they're very similar actually to your competitor 49 degrees north, which is a much better known ski area. They're, they're a lot more modern. So the lifts you have now, as you mentioned, you have lift one, which was built in 1956. Lift two was built in 61. Lift three in 1970. Lift four in 1972. Lift five in 1977. 
some of these are pretty big lifts as much as 1500 vertical feet. And then you have uh, some, some shorter ones like uh, lift five. And then of course you have the new Northwood chair, but let's put that one aside for a second. So you have these old riblet lifts and I, I'm sure you have a great lift maintenance team that keeps them spinning and, and riblets are good, reliable lifts, but long-term as you look to, if you're looking to attract more skiers, they really do expect high speed lifts at this point for a vertical drop of anywhere over, you know, as you get close to that thousand foot mark and higher. So just take us into this, Jim, you know, your wish list as you think about how you would like to evolve this lift fleet, do you have a sense of which order you would like to replace these lifts in and what you would like to replace them with? Yeah, we've, we've talked about that internally. So obviously for us, parking is probably the biggest constraint right now. Lift capacity wise, other than Vista Cruiser being a double and on race days backing up and being a fairly substantial, maybe 15, 20 minute line, we're not seeing overcrowded lines. So the triples are working for the size mountain that we are and the number of people we're, we're moving. Vista Cruiser is definitely the, the oldest lift and the one that we're looking to replace first. Uh, when you get into the detachable quads, the cost benefit for what we're doing and the volume of skiers that we're moving, we've kind of looked at that and realized, you know, the, the fixed grip triple moves double the capacity of what we're doing right now with the Vista Cruiser chair. And that's probably more than adequate until we know we're going to have substantial parking increases. And the next one would be for our night skiing, Parkway Express. It's a short one, but it moves a large volume of people. And that would probably, again, go to a triple just based on the numbers that we have and based on kind of where we think we can grow to. It's still functioning at a triple would be plenty of capacity. We did last year, we had a gearbox go out on our illuminator chair left, which was chair two. And that caused me two years of grief. And we realized there's no way we could fix it. As uh, we started to talk about riblet chairs are almost obsolete. Parts are difficult to get. So we were able to pivot and I was able to get about a million dollars in legislative funding and we replaced the motor room with a SkyTrack motor room at still keeping our riblet towers and that was just an incredible moment where like we solved a bunch of problems and did this transition at about a third of the cost of replacing the entire lift and so you know we may replace a couple of motor rooms first just to get rid of some of the you know, legacy issues that we're having just electrical and and so forth but that definitely helped the morale of our lift maintenance team um, we've been just kind of whittling away calm lines and so forth we have to do the small stuff. We do full shiv replacement on the riblet chairs so that um, we start the season off fresh and we don't have to have all this downtime and hang time to replace one shiv because it went bad and we couldn't, we can't predict when they're going to go bad. And that's helped immensely in our reliability and customer satisfaction. So you mentioned that it's difficult to get riblet parts these days. I swung through Summit at Snoqualmie a few years ago, which is um, in, in Western Washington, obviously. And the general manager over there, Guy Lawrence, pointed to the machine shop where they had put all of the old riblet machining equipment that they bought when the company closed up shop sometime in the last couple of decades. Do you work with them or do you source these parts from elsewhere for the riblets, the shivs and stuff? So interestingly enough, Spokane's a pretty good source place for us. Uh, Superior Tramways has a number of parts that we get through them. And we actually have gone to Snoqualmie Pass and purchased stuff from them as well as they're decommissioning their lifts. And so that seems to be our recipe right now. Ultimately, we realize that these are dinosaurs and 
uh, they need to be swapped out. And, and we have a great relationship with SkyTrack. It's within our budget. And it's kind of nice to standardize and have one thing for our lift maintenance crew. So I kind of look at efficiencies. Swapping parts is important when you're as remote as most ski areas are. And having fair parts on the shelf, not only for our lifts, but our snowcats. Uh, we had to wait a week for a hub to come in this last Christmas break uh, because of the snowstorm. I'm like, why don't we have one on the shelf? You know, yeah, right. so building inventories and where people are decommissioning the riblets, we're purchasing what we can and just stockpiling until um, we get, you know, probably 15 years before we can replace all of these lifts, but we're going to whittle away at it uh, one at a time. You know, parts are one thing. Uh, when I when I hosted Lightner Poma President Darren Cole on the podcast recently, he brought up another interesting point, which is that a lot of the guys who have been doing this for decades and decades and came up and they've been working on these lifts and they know them inside and out and and they have this very intimate knowledge with them. He said a lot of them are going to be retiring. And it was an interesting point that I hadn't thought about before. Talk a little bit, Jim, about the lift maintenance crew that you have at Mount Spokane and how familiar and, and how good they are working on these riblet lifts, but ultimately how you're thinking about this long term as you look to modernize your lifts and your workforce. You know, obviously that's in the back of my mind, realizing that these lifts have been kind of abandoned to some extent and there's not a lot of support. We do, again, Spokane's fairly industrial. So when it comes to fixing and, and some of the smaller component, the assemblies that come off of these lifts, we have a couple of machine shops in town that we drop the spare ones in the fall and we pick them up in the spring and we're consistently replacing the assemblies uh, for the shivs. But you get to the point where even the towers are direct buried into the ground and in concrete, the new standards, they bolt them to the foundation. So there's some age components and engineering components that it's just not the style anymore. And getting away from that is just going to come through full lift replacements. The knowledge base, I think there are still people that work on the transmissions, for example, the electrical components. We have really good um, electricians here that we sub out some of that work if we get in a pickle. And we can still get most of the, the replacement parts for the braking system and all of that in town. So we're in a good spot. Is it sustainable? No. Do we know that? Yes. And, you know, it's really all about the funding now and how do we methodically move forward and start a replacement program. That's where we're really hoping this partnership with our concession agreement with state parks will take a bit of a turn. We have self-funded for 25 years. This is our 25th anniversary as Mount Spokane 2000 running the concession. And we've self-funded that whole time. This is where in order to get these bigger three and a half, four million dollar lifts swapped out, we need a little more assistance to make that happen. State Parks has agreed to do it. It's a bit of a timing issue and prioritization by the legislature and being written into their budget. We were written in and then the governor had a pet project uh, starting up a new park. <laughs> and a chunk of the $30 million was pulled directly for the new park. And not only did our project get pulled, but you know, another 26 million for state parks got pulled. So even though the stars align, sometimes you got to pivot and uh, shift gears. So we're going to try and fund this first lift ourselves, which will be about $4 million, a SkyTrack fixed triple. And we're going to try and make it happen in 2024 just because it's time. Now, interesting, one of my board members was the first person to ride Vista Cruiser Tier 1. Wow. And I said, you're going to be the first one to ride the replacement. She's uh, <laughs> still on our board. 
And I think she said she was seven when that lift started. Unbelievable. Yeah. So it'll be kind of a neat story. <laughs> so Lift One Vista Cruiser built in 1956. I mean, this is just amazing. That may be the longest contiguously running lift in the United States. You, you may have some insight into that, but you know, usually when I ask about these really old lifts, the operators will make the point. Yeah, well, you know, sure, that's when we built the towers, but we've replaced this, this, and that over the years. Just talk about the evolution of a Vista Cruiser and how much of that lift that rose in 1956 is still there as part of the functioning machine today. Boy, I, I would say you're looking at the original. Right. I don't think the the gearbox has been swapped out. We did put a variable speed drive on that about five years ago, and that has been uh, significant. Of course, the whole rope gets swapped out every five years plus. Our weight stations at the bottom is the same. Yeah, not a lot has changed on that chair. It's still running like a champ. It's just time to modernize it, obviously, right? And one of the oldest chairs, as you mentioned, I don't know who has that claim to fame, but I would say we rival it. And it was the first double chair riblet to go in. Ironically enough, the estate where Arborcrest is was Royal Riblet's estate built in 1924, who was Byron Riblet, brother from the tramway company. Mm, And um, they used to have a tram running across the river to the estate. So just ironic that here I am, the ambassador of two historic locations that both involve the Riblet family. So what are your plans? Maybe you haven't gotten this far yet, but have you thought about what you're going to do with those chairs? Those are always a hot item. A lot of scariest auction them off for charity. Any thoughts on where the pieces and parts of Lift One will go? Well, for right now, until we replace all the riblets, obviously, we'll probably keep the majority of stuff. But you're right. The double chair as an auction item either for swings or chairs, it's a a great thing. And that can help be part of our fundraising process. Bridger Bull had their big fire a couple of years ago, and we sent about 20 chairs over to them so that they could auction it off and help in the fire community and auction that off and help their community. So there's always a home for these chairs, but I'm sure we'll be one of the last resorts to rid ourselves of the riblet tramways. (laughs) You know, it's a work in progress. I I always say the other comparison to the wine industry, you have to have a lot of patience. They they call it grafting, right? So there's a French hybrid grape varietal that goes with the American rootstock. So you graft. If you order a graft from the nursery, from the time you order that graft and plant it and get it to a fruitful state, which is about three to five years, and then get it in a bottle and put it on the grocery store shelf, it takes about eight years. So I feel like, you know, my changes here are only taking three years. So I've doubled the amount of time I can move the needle. So you got to have a lot of patience and then you just got to stick to the plan and be diligent about what you do and make sure you stick to it. So Jim, you've mentioned Skytrack several times and Skytrack is a good simple fixed grip lift. It's a division of Leitner Poma of America. And this seems to be the preferred lift for the smaller operations, the family owned operations that just need a modern lift. And they're dealing with some of these older ones. You are, you already have one lift six, a Northwood triple, which went in, in 2018. That is a 1439 foot vertical rise. It is, it sounds like your intention is to standardize the lift fleet and modernize the lift fleet. Is is Skytrack what you want to go with? Have you had those conversations with them? 
Yeah. So like I said, there's some efficiencies by sticking to one product line. We're even looking at it in our cat fleet or groomer fleet. You can have your replacement parts. You don't have to have two of everything or three of everything. They're fairly local when you look at Salt Lake City. Uh, Easy to get here. Great technical support. It's not that we wouldn't look at other lift manufacturers. It's just sometimes you go with what works and standardizing and, and efficiencies. They did this motor room at the bottom of Illuminator Chair 2, and my experience with them was just fantastic. It was the first time I'd done a project of that scale, and they were in and out. They were easy to work with. And I'm not saying other companies, other ski lift companies aren't. I'm just saying it worked really well for us. And we have a great working relationship with them. So if it ain't broke, you don't necessarily have to fix it. But at the same time, you know, I'm not going to exclude other people, but this is working for us right now. So as I mentioned, these are pretty tall lifts you have, and it sounds like you're committed to fixed grip. Have you thought about loading carpets to speed up the line a little bit? Yeah, there's a component of space that you need, right, in order for those to be effective and work. Again, our parking is our component, and we're working with state parks to expand that, but that's five years out. We don't see, at this point, I don't see that being as significant of a a lift enhancement that we need, but we have had that conversation with SkyTrack to evaluate whether how we want that to look in the future. It's not a high priority at this point. I think our big need is more guest service facilities and uh, modernization of those facilities. And being the nonprofit, we have to kind of prioritize lifts and lift reliability are my number one. The, the first day I started, the first day of the ski season, uh, one of our chairs, the comm line went down and it was down for 30 minutes on opening day in the first 15 minutes. I was horrified. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And from that moment forward, you know, I talked to our maintenance team. I'm like, what do you need? What resources do you need to solve these silly problems that should not be a problem? And we've spent the last three years, like I said, replacing comm lines, 100% shift replacements. We should not be shut down for silly things like that. So I happen to look at your trail report today. It looks like Northwood lift is currently closed for repair with an estimated reopening date of tomorrow, Tuesday, January 10th. Not to not to uh, dwell on this because these things happen. But since I have you here, just curious, what is the issue with Northwood right now and how is your team going about fixing it? Yeah, so December brought us some interesting components. So we had extreme cold. We shut down a day and a half and some night skiing because we were at minus 30, which is kind of mm. unheard of us for, for us in Spokane. But that was more for ski patrol and staff safety and guest safety, right? Then we had two major rain day events with an inch of rain two days in a row and then a 15-inch storm right after that that covered it all up and you wouldn't even know it rained. Then on Christmas Eve day in the morning, we had an all-mountain power outage. That power outage ended up being one of the legs of the three-phase went out. That three-phase ended up knocking out one of our contact blocks on Vista Cruiser, which took that lift offline. That's one of ours that goes from the lodge to the top of the mountain. And the second one that went out was Illuminator. We couldn't get it started. We weren't quite sure what was going on after that three-phase outage. Well, come to find out... That third leg also going offline burned out the fan motor 
at the top of Northwood. It just took a couple of days for that to kick in, but it was the same component that went out at Illuminator that we were able to resolve with a, there was a resistor switch they could just swap out, but it actually blew the motor. So we're waiting on that motor just got shipped this morning. It'll be here tomorrow. We'll have it installed that it's the fan that cools the electric motor. So that was a result of the power outage that we had just over a week ago. Like I said, it was identical to the Illuminator one, which showed up immediately. So again, you have to adapt every day. It's like turning your irrigation system off. Everything's working. The sprinklers are all working fine. You shut it down and in the colder climates, you have to blow your sprinklers out, right? You come back, you put the water in the system, you turn the timer box on and 10% of the sprinklers are broken and there's cracked pipes everywhere. Every day you leave, everything's working. You come back here at the mountain and there's always one component that just says it's tired or doesn't want to do what it's supposed to do and you have to adjust and adapt. <laughs> yeah. So so fortunately, Northwood is an expansion that Mount Spokane opened about five years ago. So the mountain still skis pretty well and pretty big without it. But let's talk about that expansion a, a, a little bit. And I realized that you were not in charge when this happened, but give us a sense of of what it took to make that expansion happen and how that has opened up and changed the experience of being in Mount Spokane with this great intermediate and beginner terrain that it introduced. Sure. I'm not sure where to start. The bottom line is it took about 15 years to get full approval for the 287 acres expansion. It was always kind of out of bounds skiing for most of the skiers. And there was a group of skiers that wanted it for their playground, as I understand it. And so they there was a lot of resistance, even from the skiing group that said, hey, this is our playground. Uh, don't go ruin it. Now, from the resort standpoint, you know, it didn't add a substantial amount, but it, it was the element of fall line skiing that our resort being one of the first resorts does not have a, have a lot of fall line skiing. And so they were able to lay it out appropriately with really wide runs and long runs. And once that opened up, it changed the skiing experience here at the mountain. I would say probably 25% of our crowd just goes straight over there because they're big, open, almost Sun Valley ski runs where you've got almost a mile with super wide GS turns with not too much of a pitch. And then there's a couple of ones that we don't groom that are great powder shoots uh, that drop you down to the bottom of Northwood too. One of the things that held us up was State Park hadn't done an expansion like that before. And so their permitting and the way the permitting process went had a lot of resistance as well because it was a very significant amount of trees coming out and a lot of erosion potential, wildlife and habitat uh, components that were had to be evaluated in studies and so forth. So that just added up to the clock of about 15 years. And I think our previous manager was just burned out from that uh, experience. And they state parks was really put us in an awkward position because we had to invest a lot before the lift was even guaranteed to open. And then there was some litigation as well. I'm not exactly sure what that was all about, but I think it all had to kind of focus on the wildlife and the tree removal. So once they worked through that, the addition of that additional acreage and run 
runs and fall line runs and a modern lift just changed the landscape for us substantially. The guest experience went off the meters. And so we've been running ever since realizing, okay, this was a good thing. Now, there's probably not as much of an opportunity to add more alpine skiing, but we did embrace the uphill skiers and we've put in two uphill routes. And that I think is something that I look at all of our user groups, snowshoers, uphill skiers, alpine skiers. We have a Nordic area that's run by the state right now, but my real goal is one brand, one story. And at some point, I would love to roll that into our program. I think we're more nimble and more efficient, but it's complicated because it's packaged with the snowmobiling and the fee structure that the park charges for the Nordic and their parking snow parking pass along with the ORV pass. So I've got to wade through that before we can realize the outcome of having Nordic wrapped into our story. But even so, just having, I think they have 67 miles of Nordic trails right in the same park. So we have the whole package here. It's just bringing it all together under one umbrella, hopefully in the next five to 10 years. Gosh, it's also interesting, Jim, and there's so much good stuff in there. You know, we're accustomed to seeing ski areas who work with the U.S. Forest Service, and there's more than 100 major U.S. ski resorts, mostly major, that are on U.S. Forest Service land, and they each have to submit a an updated master plan every decade. I'm curious, wh- what if any process, standard process, Washington State has for a ski area operating on their public land, and if you have some sort of similar master planning process. And I guess just talk a little more about what your relationship is like in general with the Washington State Park Service. Yeah, so let's start with the Washington State Park process. So we have a concession agreement that goes to uh, 2038. That concession agreement has been amended about six times. A number of items that were contentious was we were supposed to uh, reimburse parks for all of the plowing in in the tune of about $75,000 in the original agreement. That was pulled out early on. There's been a lot of transition at State Park, and I would say we're an outlier. There's maybe a dozen concession agreements, and we are the only ski area concession agreement. So the original agreement that was written in 1997, we were just a ski area. Now we're much more than that. We're working towards this year-round activity. We'll probably be either in a full renegotiation with this concession agreement or create another amendment. The going to the seven days a week, like we talked about earlier, was a big thing because that meant that their plow crews had to come in seven days a week and they didn't have the coverage for that. So when we want to make a change, we have to you know, request in writing and then wait for their response. They've been incredible to work with, but I will give you an example that's uh, contentious a little because it's, it's a conflict of interest. So it's the Washington State Parks and Recreation Commission. We are definitely part of that recreation component in their mission statement, but they're definitely environmentally focused and balance and wildlife. And so it's definitely a conflict when you're trying to expand some glades and improve and widen some runs. So we're working to put a tree plan together, for example, that identifies areas where we can continue to improve the guest experience and the skiing experience without conflicting against the parks, one of parks primary missions, and the second is recreation. So we're trying to strike that balance, which I think U.S. Forest Service, and I I went to the Pacific Northwest uh, meeting last year in Bend, and 
you know, the U.S. forest representatives there and just talking about this, how do we find that balance? How do we allow ski areas to do what they want to do? And so I went back to parks and said, hey, how do we partner on this and how do we find a balance and opportunities so that we can generate revenue during the four months that we're open and create a great guest experience, which is what state parks is all about, and move forward without stalling out and getting stuck on not taking a tree out or habitat and environment and so forth. So the process is pretty straightforward. We had a strategic plan that was done in 2014. So approximately 10 years, 2024, here we are. And um, with my leadership team, we've come back worked with our board, worked with our staff, and put a strategic plan together. And in that, we're working on kind of the final development plan. And then that will be worked with state parks so that we can get some of their blessing as well as some of their funding through their budgeting process, and then go after independent funding as well. It really comes down to manage growth, balance, and teamwork and partnerships, right? And I think all of it will come together, parks and states, and just like the U.S., Forest Service, they move at a slower pace than private and and small business. And so, again, patience is probably the key word right here. And, you know, like I said, I can do things in four years here, whereas it took eight in the winery. So I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> so there, there's no way around it. Running a modern lift serve ski area requires infrastructure, and there is some environmental degradation that goes along with that. But there are ways to modernize and make things more efficient and offset what you're doing on the mountain with things elsewhere. One of the big environmental impacts that I think is less pertinent to you, at least for now, is snowmaking. And I was able to find a little bit of information online that Spokane tried snowmaking at one point and it didn't really work out. Talk about the history of snowmaking at Mount Spokane and what your thoughts are on snowmaking for the ski area's future and if it's necessary or not. Yeah, so when you look at the investment for just for water storage, used to be a dollar a gallon when we were looking at the winery because that was one of our constraints there too was fire flow and uh, water storage. I'm not sure what that number is now, but the storage volume you need to do the snowmaking is fairly substantial. The environmental impact on that and so forth Uh, probably going through the park system would be pretty burdensome. So we've kind of done just some analysis internally. If it's cold, what we could get snowmaking on probably wouldn't be impactful. It would create ribbons. And, you know, we skied at Schweitzer a lot because we always like to be there opening day and closing day. And, you know, that ribbon is, is icy usually. And so that skier experience is not necessarily what we're trying to promote. So that effort to put the storage in, purchase the snowmaking equipment, and then manage it for the temperatures that we have here in Spokane are pretty limiting. Like it's usually not that cold early on in the season. If it is that cold, there's usually moisture associated with it and we're getting snow. So that that investment, I think, for us doesn't make sense when we're so in need of new lifts and facilities. So we've kind of put that on the bottom of the list. We do have the water rights, which is great, but we'd still have to pump it high enough for the storage component. We've kind of put that on hold and on the back burner since there are other such higher priority items. And I don't know what snowmaking they did before because our storage is only about 20,000 gallons uh, at this point, (laughs) which is not a lot when you think about, again, this facility is grandfathered in. It doesn't have sprinklers in it. 
the ski patrol building does, which is probably the newest structure on the, the property. But we're still a little bit behind the curveball on that. So as I mentioned in the intro, Jim, Mount Spokane does get 300 inches of snow per year. I think most folks who are familiar with Washington skiing are thinking of Stevens Pass or Crystal or some of the Snoqualmie, the mountains that are on the west side of the state, on the big passes that are within driving distance of Seattle. They tend to get heavier snow, often characterized as cascade concrete, and, and I realize it's an overgeneralization and they have many great snow days. However, the snow seems to be a little different on the west side of the state. Just talk about the kind of snow that you tend to get with that 300 inches and, and, you know, that, because that's to not be able to, to be able to operate consistently without snowmaking is quite a feat and you need a pretty good volume and quality of snow to do that. So just talk about that element of the operation a little bit. Well, it, it's interesting. So again, when you look at it from a snow farming standpoint and, and what you need to create a good base and then what you want for the skier experience, you want moisture in that snow for your base and then you want it to lock down and freeze up. And then you want the powder on top of that so that you can have a great skier experience and not hit rocks or stumps or whatever. We are in a great cycle, especially in the La Nina years. The temperatures seem to be a little cooler for us the last couple of years. And so we're getting the, the first couple of storms were light powder, very low moisture content. And so packing it down and creating that base was a little tough for us this year. I mean, it's the right kind of snow to have, but to come out of the gate and have powder conditions right from the get-go makes it a little harder to form your base. The last storm that just came through yesterday, we were in that 31, 32 uh, degree here. And so there was a little more moisture content going on top, which will help compact and set the base. January, February are our heaviest skier visitations with our youth groups and adaptive skier programs and race program, and just the highest volume of, of skier visits too. So we're set up now perfectly to service those couple of months in our peak. But yeah, moisture content probably is the biggest factor. But the three years that I've been here, we the storms have just hit perfectly. Um, we've got some of those three to five inches a couple day every couple of days, and then a couple of fifteen inch dumps. And so I haven't had to fight that battle. There's always that moment of, um, as I told you, we were doing projects all the way up until opening day. That moment where you're like, okay, I got to stop projects and just hope for snow. And and that's usually about the second week in November. So uh, <laughs> again. Things have been good the last three years, but you have to be prepared for a late start. And I think the latest they started here was January 2nd or 3rd. They didn't have enough snow to open, um, so they didn't have the holiday stretch. And those are the years that hopefully you've got some reserves to hold you through till you can open. So you mentioned, so that's certainly enough snow, Jim, to have a really good tree skiing scene. And you mentioned that a little bit. You don't have a lot of glades on the trail map, but as you're skiing around, can you generally ski anywhere the woods are open? And as you, you mentioned that you were trying to glade out a little bit more and, and maybe clear some stuff so you could ski through it. What are those areas of the mountain you'd like to focus on amplifying the ski experience on? So when I got here, my first ambition was get a crew, go in and do some thinning. And then I realized one that was right at COVID and then finding a chainsaw crew that can be effective and move around on the mountain. It's not as easy in some of those glade zones, as you would think during the summer, to get to them and cut trees down. It's actually easier in the winter to go out and ski right. to them and, and cut. So 
you know, I, that was a little bit of my learning curve and naivety. Um, so I, I've, I've re-strategized a little. But working with state parks, we're really focused on the hidden treasure chair four side. It's already got uh, some really great blade skiing. The problem is it chokes off at the bottom. And so you have to kind of meander through some zones that are really tight and narrow. So that's the low-hanging fruit is in that section. Also coming off the Vista House between Chair 1 and Chair 2, Vista Cruiser and Illuminator, there's some glading in there where we just need to do some limbing to open it up so it's a little easier. And that's fairly straightforward, and we're whittling away at that. Over the next couple of years, there's some race sections off of Vista Cruiser. We call it Tea Kettle B29, where I want to take some tree clusters out and widen out for our uphill skiers so that when they are racing, there's a little more space for the uphill skier traffic and downhill racer traffic. So I've put a tree plan in motion with state parks. It's going through their review process. I don't want to say they're they're resistant. I just want to say they have to be educated on why we need that for the guest experience. But also there's some tree health components to it, just spacing things out. But we're in an, what they call an alpine zone, and, and there's a lot of slow, stunted tree growth. So some of those trees are fairly old. So we're going to have to kind of negotiate with them on where we can take a tree out and where we can't. Unfortunately, it's probably more a tree-by-tree tree basis. But again, little patience, little planning, we'll get there and increase the guest experience in those glade areas. So on the other end of the spectrum, you go to the beginners and one of your stated ambitions for Mount Spokane on your website is to expand the learning area. So just tell us about those plans, Jim, what you have in mind. Is that going to be right down where your, where your current ski school is? Do you have another area in mind? And also, if I'm reading the trail map correctly, you don't have any carpets or, or beginner lifts other than the beginner's luck chairlift. So would that be part of the plan as well to have some more beginner-friendly lifts in there? Yeah, so we, we actually do have a magic car, a sun kid, sun oh, belt cool. kid in our learning area between the Mountain Sports Ski Patrol building and Lodge 2. We have what we call our boneyard where uh, we, we store all of our riblet towers that we brought in from Bridger Bowl and, and some of our spare stuff where it could be converted into a learning area with either a rope toe or another sunbelt sun kid. We're also looking at the terrain park, adding a sun kid or Poma lift in the next year or two to decrease some of the traffic in um, Hidden Treasure Chair 4 and Chair 3 Parkway Express. The terrain park people want to go and lap. So the learning area is just limited by space. We have a high volume and have grown the ski school. I want to say we've grown it by a third, if not more, since my tenure here. It's just, there's not a lot of space for us to go. Uh, over at Lodge One, we had a tubing hill, which we could convert to beginner, but it's just not in the right space near the rentals and getting kids over there won't work. So our goal is to probably push that to additional parking so people don't have to take the shuttle I think it'll add 150 to 180 uh, parking spaces. We took the tubing out at the onset of COVID really to focus on skier experience and um, parking uh, experience. So with tubing, they come up for an hour and a half, two hours, take up the parking spaces and then leave. And the skier crowd was having to park further and further away from the lodges. So we never brought that back after COVID, and I think it's been a good decision, and we've just said, let's focus on skier experience. We may have an opportunity in another two to three years. There's a lodge at the entrance of the park that State Parks is working on purchasing 
where we may get the concession for that, and it would have lodging, wedding and event programs, snowmobiling, and tubing operations. So that's something in our future that's coming up, and that could potentially be some uh, learning area too down the road. So another goal on your website is to, quote, expand and modernize your facilities. And you've mentioned this several times, you do have some dated facilities. So which facilities would you like to focus on? And you've also mentioned parking several times. So where are you trying to build out that extra parking? How many spots do you have now? And how many would you like to get to? Like how many could the mountain handle? Yeah, I think our car parking is around 1,400 parking spaces and, you know, 1,700 to 1,800 be great. It's going to be a stretch in order to do that. We'll have to either bring in some fill just because of the steepness of the slopes and do some widening in some of the zones that we have right now. You know, the Sugar Bowl did it back probably 20 years ago. They put the parking structure in. Um, that was a game changer for them. Might even be longer. I just remember when I went there the first time when I was young and <laughs> It was the lot. And then all of a sudden I went back and they had a garage. I'm like, wow, this has changed. Um, and, and I always like that wow factor when you go skiing at another ski area. Like, what's changed since I've been here? So, But I think from the guest services standpoint, we put in a structure we call our mountain sports building that houses our ski school and lift operations team. And then there's a shop down below it. What we want to do is take off of that building and it probably expand it by two thirds and then incorporate all of that and move the staff out of there in the shop. And that would be our guest services, admin, ticketing, rentals, and they would be right at the base of Beginner's Luck Tier 5 and create kind of a welcome center. Right now, you have to walk from the parking lot to Lodge 2 and there's no what I would call welcoming environment. You, and the, the signage and the way it was laid out, you, it's really difficult to know where to go. So by creating this guest service center, it would be a drop-off zone for parents, for the shuttle buses, for busing, and parents that are just bringing their kids for the day. Easy access to tickets, easy access to rentals. Once you get done with rentals, you just walk right out and you're at the snow. So that's kind of our ultimate goal, and that's our weakest link right now. Our rental shop could probably add another 30% or 40% if we had more storage space and we could service guests easily. It just is hampering our ability to bring people in and push them out because it's such tight quarters. And that was just the way it was set up. And we don't have any other place to put it right now. So guest service center for sure is the focus. Like I said, lift capacity is not the issue right now. It's the parking. So we have to work with state parks. They have to put in their budget plan. They have to do the design phase, which is a two-year component right now. I think it will be funded this year. We'll know in April. Once the design phase is done, then they have to go after the construction dollars, and that's three to five years for us. So a long process, but they are working on it. So that's good news. One thing looking at the base, you know, this is in a reality for most Washington state ski areas is there's nowhere to stay at the mountain. And I would imagine that since you are on state parks land, the answer to this question is no, but is there potential and, or have you explored the possibility of adding any sort of lodging, condos, hotel, anything like that to the base? There are some great examples in state parks where they do have lodging. I wouldn't rule it out. Again, we would have to fund that, right? And that's a substantial investment. We have talked about yurts and, you know, glamping to some extent for the summer operations, which would fold in if we could do it so that they were on the ski hill somewhere. I went 
back in the 80s to Istria and in the old Yugoslavia. And there was a hotel up on the mountain. I remember staying there and what an awesome, we were the first skiers every morning. It was 1984 when the shuttle crashed. I remember being there and seeing it in a foreign language. And, but we were there on the mountain every morning and we were the first ones to ski. So there is something in the back of my mind that I would love to see that. We would just have to kind of negotiate with parks how that look and feel is. Uh, it's not on our short list just because of the complexity and, and what it would take to do that and the funding. But I do see if Bear Creek Lodge came online, which is down at the entrance to the park, that would give us a foot in the door in terms of evaluating lodging as a component. It's only 14 or 15 bedrooms, which is small, but you know it would get us kind of at that entry level. It's not out of the question. We do have a condo association with 124 condos about one or two minutes down the road from us. We actually started a shuttle service that, to those condos nice. to kind of offset the traffic and the in and out of the parents dropping their kids off for race team or lessons. Uh, and that's been impactful. So again, just looking at partnerships and how uh, we move forward in that realm of housing is is big. You know, Schweitzer has done an incredible job of building their village out. Parking is still one of their weaknesses, and I know they're working on that. And so it'll be interesting to see how their evolution as that's their footprint, right? The food and beverage in their multiple restaurants and their, their village uh, is an incredible experience. I would love to be able to say, we will have that here. At the same time, we are a community mountain. We are in a state park. So there are some constraints we just have to work through and evaluate over the next couple of years and see if it makes sense to go in that direction. I would love to, but that may not be our best effort right now. So Jim, one thing that is that stands out to me about Mount Spokane is the price of a lift ticket, just $75 on weekends and holidays for an adult ticket, $59 on weekdays. Of course, you have some discount tiers below that for different age groups. But for the size of mountain, that is a really, really good price. Talk about how you set your lift ticket prices and how you've been able to keep them affordable, even as Mount Spokane, like every other skier in the country, is facing pressure from inflation and labor shortages and supply chains and everything else. Right. I, I think we always go back to we're a nonprofit. We're a community mountain. We want to remain accessible to the public and to our community. That's a hard balance. A little bit in the wine industry is the same thing. If you price yourself out of the market, you only go to a finite number of people. I do think there is a price point and perception component similar to the wine industry. You know, if, you, if you're paying $20 or over, there's a certain perceived quality. And so picking that price point is a little bit of a, a sticky wicket, right? If you overprice yourself relative to the other regional and local ski resorts, there are the price sensitive people. But at the same time, if you provide that value proposition and you give them great customer service and your facilities are clean, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times a day I walk around and I just pick up trash because people don't want to see trash or I go through the bathrooms and, and I do a quick cleanup in there. People want clean facilities. And if they see that and there's that perception that you take care of your facilities, we're going through right now and painting the doors because they're all dinged up again after we painted them this summer. 
<laughs> they will they will respect the fact that the facilities at least looked well kept and are clean. And so we're just working on that component. And I think that allows you to keep your ticket price a little higher, but it's about experience. And so at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to make it with minimum wage in Washington State going to 1574 here at the first of the year. That added an interestingly added about another $200,000 to our payroll that we weren't anticipating when we built our budget last June. So minimum wage impacts a little bit of our ticket pricing. I think we're the second highest in the region to Schweitzer, but we're also closer and um, we have some great acreage to ski on. Uh, There is arguably the older lifts, but the reliability of them has changed in the last year or two. And I think as long as we keep those lifts spinning and guests skiing, we can continue to charge what we're charging. So for those who just want to try it out, Mount Spokane did join the Freedom Pass last year. And that is a coalition of 20 ski areas around the United States that offer season pass holders each of the other 20 ski areas, three lift tickets throughout the year. So what take us into your decision to join the Freedom Pass, Jim, and what has the reception been like so far both from your pass holders and maybe from visitors from other ski areas who may have come in? Well, because we're not a destination ski area, we're a day trip area, we want to welcome other pass holders here to enjoy our mountain. And so by joining up with that, that exposes us to a different group of outside skiers and a, a different base. I think when I was talking to our my assistant GM, she was saying, you know, we maybe get six to 10 per week that come up and experience our mountain. But if they're going back and telling our story, it's a win for us and a win for the other ski areas. As season pass holders, you know, sometimes you want to take your family somewhere else. And so this opens the door for those families that ski here all the time, but want to give their family a ski experience, uh, the opportunity to go to another mountain and learn the fun part about skiing, which is there are so many great skiers all over the world to go experience. Why shouldn't we go do it? Yeah, the, the Freedom Pass areas are pretty spread out, but you also have reciprocal deals with some closer ones, Mount Ashland right there in Oregon. Bohemia is in Michigan, but that's a really unique spot. Yep. Uh, Great Divide, Loop Loop, Lee Canyon's a bit of a stretch. Snow King, White Pass, I'd imagine your pass holders really love that one. Um, and Ski Cooper. Talk about these partnerships, Jim. Did these predate you or is this something that you brought on board? And, and wh- why do you continue to grow this network out? Uh, it, some of them were here. And then we just realized that kind of like the airlines, right? The more you leverage those relationships, the stronger your pass holder benefits and, and so forth are. And so Jody has added our my assistant GM a number of these, just they've called us or, or she's reached out just because we've met them at some of the ski industry events. Like mountains, nonprofits and family owned, et cetera, that align with kind of our core values and, and what we're trying to give our guest experience with. And so, again, it's just value added for those that are going out in the ski world and exploring. It gives them some other options other than skiing here the entire season, although we love having them here. <laughs> We've seen some of the smaller ski areas around the country really put a lot into this and Ski Cooper, I think is up to 65 partners. Do you anticipate continuing to grow this network? Are you pretty happy with the size right now? Is this just something you're trying? What, what are your thoughts on the future of this reciprocal network that you've built? 
Well, there's the ability to grow. It's just having enough bandwidth to manage that. We find, you know, there are some reciprocal resorts that our employees like to go to and the paperwork and just, you know, following through and, and tracking it sometimes gets a little overwhelming when you're just trying to go through your day-to-day operations. So that added workload sometimes can can be a little bit of a distraction. At the same time, it doesn't take much. Someone shows up with a pass at our ticket window, they're on our list, we issue the ticket and they're on their way. Growing it is, I, I wouldn't say it's a high priority, but I would say as we expand, I think we're around 6,800 season pass holders now, as that expands, sending that base out there and having them tell our message here could be an attractant too. So I feel like it's the right thing to do uh, and it's happening more organically than intentional. And so we're just we're just kind of seeing which partners make sense and who we want to work with so that it doesn't become burdensome. Um, and that that's kind of been the success of the additions that we've had. And over time, if we see some more value for our customer base, then we might continue to add it. How about the Indie Pass, Jim? This little different model where if you join this coalition, Indie Pass holders would get two days at your ski area, and every time they visit, you would get a payout from Indy from that pot of pass holders. My understanding is that because of the proximity of 49 Degrees North and Silver Mountain, which are jointly owned, they signed on with Indy with this understanding that Indy wouldn't sign any other partners too close. So that may be forestalling you from from joining, but but I'm, that, that's just what I've heard in the past, and I'm not sure if that's still current. So so what are your thoughts on the Indy Pass? Is this something you've thought about and you would like to join, or are you happier with the reciprocal deals? I, I think, you know, being independent and having our autonomy is probably more important to us than being part of a bigger picture like that. Again, a lot of that's destination ski mountain based, and we're just not quite in the same arena as the Indie Pass holders. It hasn't made sense for us at this point, and I think we're staying focused on the local aspect and, and serving our community. And so we'll evaluate it over time, but right now it doesn't fit our model. And I'm not sure about whether the other mountains have exclusivity or not. We haven't even gone down that path, but right now we've got great visitations. We're filling the parking lot up actually day one, because we had record snowfall in November. And that first weekend in December, we had a sellout day on opening day. Again, because we're managing our parking lot through our ticket online ticket sales. It was just interesting to come out of the gate at full speed ahead. And again, right place, right time, right amount of snow. So couldn't ask for a better start and we're rolling. All right, Jim, you've mentioned several times the fundraising component of Mount Spokane and how important that is to your operation. If folks want to support the ski area, what's the best way to do that? Is it just, hey, show up, come out, buy a lift ticket, have some fun? Or is there another avenue that you think is more impactful? I think that's the number one way to support you know, our nonprofit and ski area is just come out and enjoy it. But we do have a donate now button on our website. You know, we use that for some of our infrastructure things. We're working, like I said, on the surface lift for uh, the terrain park and fairly focused with what those dollars come in and help us with. So yeah, you can find that on uh, mtspokane.com and then there's a donate now uh, under one of the, uh, the bars there. And other than that, yeah, come and ski. And then, you know, we'd love to go support other mountains too and and show them the love as well. All right, Jim. Well, with that, I will let you go and hopefully you'll get a few runs in today and enjoy all that snow you've been getting. I, uh, this was actually the first storm skiing podcast recorded in 2023. So thank you very much for getting us off to an awesome start in the new year. And I, 
appreciate your insight and vision and uh, really look forward to watching this thing grow over the next several years. So thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for your time and great to be here today. That's Jim Van Lobensels, General Manager of Mount Spokane, Washington. Thank you very much for that, Jim. Those of you who say you're searching for that vibe, there you go. Mount Spokane. Put down your icon pass and go do something different. That is a special place and one that belongs on every skier's checklist. Thank you all for listening. 2023 is going to be huge on the Storm Skiing Podcast. Coming up, I have the leaders of Whitefish, Palisades Tahoe, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peaks, and Stevens Pass, booked for conversations. And I am booking more all the time. Added to the lineup just this week, Snow Basin General Manager Davey Ratchford will join me on the Storm Skiing Podcast in just a few weeks. To get those episodes the moment they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.